This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The horrific fire in high-rise fire in London, England. Uh, the death toll continues to rise as they sift through the, the charred wreckage of uh, what remains of that building right now. They are not anticipating finding any more survivors in that. But it does raise the uh, the question about, first of all, how did that happen? And uh, just as importantly, I suppose, as we watch the, the, the footage of what was going on and and the, the havoc that was happening on the streets there. I don't know if you saw the uh, report from Jeff Semple on Global News last night on Global National uh, of uh, the angst and the, the anger from residents and, re- I guess, family members of residents of this building saying, you were told you did nothing, and it got, it got quite ugly. Can that sort of thing happen here? Can we see those sorts of high-rise fires here in North America? There is a history here. I mean, we have seen some of those. As I mentioned in my commentary earlier this morning, the, uh, the MGM Grand in Las Vegas comes to mind, the Inn and the Park in Toronto. Now, those were some years ago, but are we doing better than, than we have been when it comes to this sort of thing? We're going to give you a couple of perspectives on that right now. Joining us right now is Ted Hayton, who is a disaster management instructor at Ryerson and uh, also senior team lead for the Canadian Red Cross Emergency Response Group. Ted, th- first of all, thank you very much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. The, the obvious question, let's deal with that one right off the bat. We saw yesterday some horrific film of what was going on in London, and, and I think in, in all of our minds that this, that question was lingering. Could, could that go on here? Well, can it here? Well, high-rises are uh, can be uh, tinder blocks uh, because of the number of people, uh, number of people cooking, number of electrical devices, some have fireplaces and so on. So it's possible to have that same tragedy. But uh, our city uh, resources, our assets of fire, EMS, and, and Red Cross are always at ready. Uh, we, we practice and rehearse on a regular basis both small-scale and large-scale events like that. So we have the capacity to respond to that fire. It's up to landlords and building codes and provincial and municipal authorities to uh, do what they can on the building code to prevent uh, those kind of electrical or uh, cooking fires. Now, you, of course, with your job, even in the work with the Red Cross, I mean, you're not looking over the shoulder of building inspectors and others as they're doing all those inspections. But do you get a sense, though, Ted, from what you do know, that, that we are doing a job like this? I mean, we've seen tragedies like this in other parts of the world uh, you know, in, in Southeast Asia and places like this. And, and we always, I guess, try to rationalize it by saying, well, you know, we know they have lax building codes and things like that. There, That had never happened here. But, but it has happened. Maybe not on the same scale, but it has happened here. What, what I can vouch for is that the, uh, the assets, the rescue and response assets, are always ready for any scale, from a World Trade Center down to an end of the park fire to a, a single floor at, uh, at a hotel. Uh, who is not ready uh, are, the, are the citizens, are the tenants. That's where uh, the survival rate uh, goes, uh, goes down. That's where the recovery rate or getting back to normal and getting your life back to normal falls because people do not make plans for these kind of tragedies. Uh, about 60% of Canadians, that's about 23 million of us, do not have a plan or a kit, an evacuation kit, a disaster plan with family, with their apartment, with their office, with their home. I noticed just this morning I was hearing on your news that uh, three more uh, people have, have passed away at a mm-hmm. Amazon fire at 12.30 in the morning. And that's when most fires occur, usually at night, usually when someone's sleepy and tired and they don't know where their spectacles are, where their medications are, and they rush out the door uh, with some of their clothes or none of their clothes on, and they don't have all of the 
the things they need for medication for themselves, for their pets, for their animals, for their, their mother-in-law, and so on. And people need to be better ready so they can have a higher survival rate in this kind of tragedy. You know, you raise a very interesting point, because we do do emergency drills in some places. I mean, you know, when we, I can remember when I was in school all these many years ago. I mean, every now and then there would be a quote-unquote fire drill. I mean, they do them here in the building from time to time as well. I uh, went on a cruise a, a year or two ago, and there's a there's a drill. I mean, before they, they even get out of the dock, they say, here's what you have to do, here's where you need to go. But when you move into a high-rise, that doesn't happen, a, a, and it probably should. Fifty percent of people in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area live in a high-rise or some low-rise of some multi-tenanted building. And my job as a volunteer with Red Cross is also community preparedness. And as I go to hospitals, I go to nursing homes, I go to condo associations, apartment buildings, lobbies, and we give these lectures for, for Red Cross on how people can uh, you know, increase their, their, their survival and capacity to recover rate. And most people in that room do not have a flashlight, do not have a, a cell phone charger backup. They don't have what we call at Red Cross a go bag or a ready bag in their front door. And they don't have a plan. They don't practice. And uh, if they live on the 17th floor and uh, an alarm goes at 12.30 in the morning and the power's off, uh, and the smoke's in the hall, they don't know where to go. And that's when people have uh, take on damage and perish is because they don't know where to go. They can't see or they can't breathe as they're making their way down the hall. Do we, do we talk about that? I mean, is that something that we should be having a, a national discussion about, about the fact that, and I talked about this on my blog again today, I mean, you know, it's happening in every major city in North America right now, Ted. We're going higher. I mean, you know, it's all about infill in cities right now and, and building high-rise condos, apartments, whatever the case might be, which means more and more people are gravitating to that lifestyle right now. But are, are we lagging behind in making sure those people know what to do in case of a, of a situation like this? I think so. I think we're building faster uh, and higher than we're training people and the tenants to cope. Uh, for example, most uh, fire departments cannot reach beyond the seventh or eighth floor of a high-rise, so everybody above the eighth floor is going to have to run down the stairs or jump out a window into a, you know, a tramp or wait till fire crews come up the back stairs with oxygen and then lead them down. So we're building 50, 60, 70, 80-story condominium towers in the GTHA now. Uh, it, it's just going to cause more, uh, more panic, I think, and more confusion. What we try to get people to do is to have a, in this go bag that I suggest, so, you know, uh, know what to do if there's a fire alarm. Fill your tub, have water, get some towels wet, put them over your head, put them under your door, uh, keep low because the uh, toxic fumes and smoke rise and um, have an escape route. And uh, we also encourage people to practice it blindfolded with your family. If you're on the 20th floor, you know, on a Sunday afternoon or something, blindfold, have some fun with it, but uh, it's a game, but it's also a very serious practice. And how would you crawl out if you can't see along the floor to a, a fire escape? And where would you go? Uh, and, and therein lies part of the problem, I guess, is, is that sort of a drill to see just, just what can happen. Uh, I, I knew a guy that, uh, that you, I'm sure you remember, at least anecdotally, the in on the park fire that happened in Toronto. Of course, uh, this is back in the 80s, mm-hmm. but it was a rather traumatic experience. I knew a fellow that was trapped in that building. Uh, that I, I was a co-worker at the time. And uh, to this day, i got to tell you, Ted, he's still traumatized. I mean, he could not get down because the flames were blocking the, you know, the, the lower floors, of course, and, and you couldn't go down the stairs. And he's sitting there watching this and seeing the emergency vehicles and, and wondering whether or not he's going to get out of there alive. And uh, we actually, there was a video, a terrible video, uh, of, of a lady who was doing that very same thing in the London fire yesterday. And I don't know, she sent the video off to friends. They don't know whether she survived, but she's looking down there. She can't get out. 
Uh, and you know, you have to say, well, what happens in a situation like that? Uh, you're you're absolutely right, and, and maybe nine eleven is the classic example of how great emergency services are in responding to these things. Uh, the the weak link is us because because we don't know. It is the weakest link, as I said. The you know the the public assets are, are ready for major scale uh, events like this, but the average tenant, the average homeowner. Uh, is not when that alarm goes off in the middle of the night or wherever they are, or even if they're at the office on the 20th floor of a of an office tower. Most people do not have in their desk or in their backpack or in their purse, uh, you know, an extra flashlight. Uh, they don't have a personal whistle or a siren or a white flag or something to wave out the window. They don't have um, a backup to what things they might need that would help them relax a bit more. I mean, the panic. I mean, one of the things I teach at Ryerson is is, is crisis management, which is a crowd. Uh, uh, crowd physics and when people panic they make stupid decisions and they run in the wrong direction and they, they can run into harm's way i hope this uh, out of this tragedy at least we we have that discussion on a, on a much larger scale than uh, just in case i guess that's the way we have to look at this ted thanks as always to get your perspective on this i really appreciate you joining us today not at all just remember that a plan is no good unless you rehearse it and and hope is not a plan and if you want some information on making a kit uh, go to redcross.ca perfect idea that's great so much thanks so much ted i really appreciate that thanks bill ted hangton of course uh, disaster management instructor over at ryerson university and uh, of course i uh, volunteer with the canadian red cross and emergency services we don't we don't talk about that and and we are more and more of us living in high rise buildings these days uh, and as a matter of fact, we're being encouraged to, you know, the provincial government, municipalities, Hamilton, Toronto, St. Catharines. I mean, all of these cities are talking about, you know, we got to build up. Uh, you know, we've talked about that with other cities. We don't want sprawling cities anymore. We want high rises. We need to have that kind of living. Well, are we building them in a safe manner? And do the residents there know what to do in case this happens? Aaron Paddock is the uh, president of the Hamilton District Apartment Association, and uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us uh, some perspective on this. Aaron, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. It must send shivers down your spine when you see those pictures of London and, and, and high-rises and, and the tragedies that, that can occur like this. It does. It's an absolute tragedy. Um, you can't. It's impossible to imagine what those people feel like with the children and you know, I hear they threw children off many floors up. Uh, I don't have words to talk about, uh, you know, how tragic this is. Let me ask you from from a, a structural standpoint about what happens here in, in Canada specifically, if I could, Aaron. Because yeah. we, we've heard now there's going to be a long investigation into the London situation. We understand that. But what we've learned so far is, is pretty frightening that, that there's only one staircase in the whole building. Uh, that uh, that uh, there was concern among the residents for years now about electrical problems, uh, a, a poor and inefficient sprinkler system, and things of that nature. And you, as as one of them actually tweeted, uh, and and they showed us a copy of a, a tenant's newsletter, I guess from about a year ago, that said this is an accident waiting to happen. Well, the accident has happened. What is the potential for that sort of thing here? Do we do it better here? Do we have better standards here? I'm not sure whether the standards there were met. I th uh, yeah, that's the key question. Yeah, this is not a third world country we're talking about. No, I grew up in London, uh, not far, you know, three or four miles from uh, that area. Mm -hmm. And uh, English standards, I don't think, are low. And I think our Canadian standards are very good. When I look at those pictures, uh, the video, it looks to me like the outside cladding on that building 
burnt or decayed with the heat and um it went up like a candle didn't it that that should not have been combustible like the buildings i'm in and out of every day their concrete construction uh brick outside veneer so the fire should not travel up i mean here the worst thing that happens usually in high-rise buildings here is smoke smoke going from one uh, floor or apartment to another but you never see flames go like that i, I I'm, I, I, have, I can't understand it. It has to be the cladding that's carried it from one floor to the other. Otherwise, it's concrete. Concrete, you can't, uh, flames can't travel through concrete. I don't know what happens. I mean, neither you nor I are fire experts, but I mean, clearly, no. in your role at the, the, as, as the head of the association here, yeah, I mean, you look at these buildings, you're in these buildings all the time. Uh, and, and I know that job one from talking to emergency officials when something like this happens is to contain the fire. And, and as you say, there could be smoke damage, and that's always a problem as well, but contain the flames and, and where the fire is located. That clearly didn't happen there. And I heard the same story yesterday on, on Global National, that there was some concern about that cladding on the outside of the building, which I'm told was just recently installed within the last couple of years. And, and that begs the question, well, what was that stuff comprised of, and, and why did it burn so quickly? Yeah, and that's what connects the whole building, you know, from the ground all the way up. The cladding on the outside is sort of one continuous uh, piece of cladding or, you know, fairly continuous. Uh, otherwise, high-rise buildings do not go up like that. Uh, it's buildings that I see around Hamilton, Toronto, I don't see that as being a real possibility. I mean, it, there are things that maybe could be better if the fire department is always working on things. And we work closely with the fire department. What's that schedule like? I mean, any of us that go into some of your apartment buildings, Aaron, I mean, we'll see, for instance, in the elevator, hey, this was last inspected. and Because and, there seems to be a record right there, which is uh, reassuring, obviously, i got to tell you, yeah. uh, if you're in there. But what about fire inspections, safety inspections, about the, the quality and, and, and the, the, the way the building is at that time? Even some of the older buildings, are they inspected on a regular basis? The fire department inspects buildings. Uh, I, it's... I'm not sure of the exact schedule, but I think it's maybe every three years or so. That's his high-rise buildings we're talking about. Yeah. And uh, buildings that size, uh, every unit should have an individual smoke detector. The hallways have heats and smoke detectors that are interconnected to the fire alarm. If there's underground parking or certain storage areas, we'll have sprinklers. There's standpipes. And uh, I heard one staircase and... Uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, that size of building in Ontario would not be allowed to have only one staircase. There are supposed to be two means of exits. Uh, so there yeah, I, I've be never been in a building here in Hamilton that didn't have two. I mean, usually yeah. at either end of the building. That seems to be the most obvious thing to do. But it, uh, that's what surprised me when I heard that yesterday. This is a, a, a relatively older building. We're told it was built, in, the one in London, that is, was built in the 1970s. But even then, you figure, how could they get away with that? Yeah, that's a hard one to understand. Um, the cladding that was put on later, it seems like there's been a failure on so many levels that uh, uh, should have been prevented. And, you know, if there was problems reported before, like I'm sure that if there were problems reported in a building in Hamilton or Burlington or the surrounding areas, the fire department would be on it. You know, I have a lot of faith in our fire departments and their fire prevention work. And I know they do good work, and we work with them, and uh, I don't understand how that could have happened.
Well, there are. I, I guess maybe the best way of of keeping an eye on things, obviously, are the eyes and ears of the people that live in the building, the tenants. Uh, to bring things to the attention of, of either the superintendent or somebody else in situations like that. Uh, and we certainly hear of those stories, which tells me that there's a, there's a pretty good reporting method here about shortcomings that may occur. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, obviously, if you're concerned about something, report it to your superintendent. If you're <clears throat> not happy with the response, call the fire department. I'm sure they will <clears throat> gladly look into and make sure that uh, whatever your concerns are, are either unfounded or addressed. They will... They're, you know, we have a good department, and they do their job. I have confidence in them, and I think that, uh, you know, if you have an issue, like the first thing is, smoke detectors are the number one um, uh, source of uh, the number one thing to have. You've got to have smoke detectors, and you've got to check them. So every unit should have smoke detectors throughout uh, Ontario and throughout Canada. Um, but tenants need to check them. Absolutely, and of course, uh, sprinkler systems, etc., up to the superintendent, etc. We have yeah. to break it off at this stage, Aaron, but thank you so much for taking some time with us today. I appreciate your input into this. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. We'll talk again soon. Uh, the tragedy continues. Sadly, the death toll continues to rise in London, too, and uh, it is uh, somewhat reassuring to know that uh, the building standards are being maintained and, and talked about here in this community as well. But be vigilant. That seems to be the key. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, the numbers are in for uh, the Hamilton-Burlington real estate market. As a matter of fact, for southern Ontario. And notwithstanding the government's uh, attempt to try to cool things off and uh, well, I've already told you how I feel about government sticking into free markets. But anyway, uh, it looks like the numbers are up considerably. Tim Hudak is the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Tim. How are you doing today? Hey, Bill. I'm doing great. I'm also a big Talking Heads fan, so I love the intro music. Well, burning down the house, which I don't want to give anybody any ideas. But but, <laughs> but the, 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 the market is red hot, so they could get singed a little bit, I guess, about what's going on. <laughs> the, the main numbers for Hamilton and Burlington here are looking pretty strong, aren't they? Yeah, you know, I think it reflects a couple things. Um, number one, I mean, the Hamilton-Burlington area is a, is a great place to live. The economy is doing stronger than most of the rest of uh, Canada. We're seeing a lot of uh, younger families, millennials, that are looking to live in Hamilton, particularly downtown. So those are all positive. And I suspect, though, Bill, that we will see things backing off a little bit. Um, we've seen things back off in Toronto, and I think there's going to be a ripple effect in the next little while. The numbers, uh, let's talk about listings, first of all. Uh, this is for the Hamilton-Burlington area. Over 3,000 new listings uh, alone that month, 3,208 uh, to be specific in May, which is a 41% increase from May to May, from year to year. Uh, and also up, of course, uh, from uh, the month before that as well. Uh, and that was just after the province made some of those announcements, Tim. Uh, have we not yet seen the, the full impact of that yet? Is that what's going on here? Yeah, that's what I think. I mean, uh, first of all, I mean, real estate's a, a great investment. It pays off in the long term. It's, you know, where we raise a family, you can't live inside a stock. Uh, and I think things look very bright for Hamilton and Burlington. What I've seen in, the tr- in Toronto and the near GTA that I suspect may spread is a lot more listings came on board and buyers are more cautious. So I'll explain each one. I think listings came on board, as you said earlier on, because the prices were getting higher. So a lot of people said, we'll respond to market forces. You know, honey, maybe it's now the time that we sold the house and downsized or moved to the cottage. Uh, Have you heard that a lot, Tim, that conversation around the kitchen table? Well, we're going to sell in the next year or two anyway. We may as well do it now. Yeah, there's a lot of psychology to this market. And that makes sense. It's your biggest investment, right? So if you think, 
well, maybe the market's near its peak, so maybe now is the time. So we're seeing a lot more listings coming out in response to higher prices in Hamilton and Burlington and in the greater Golden Horseshoe area. On the demand side, the psychological impact of the government's initiatives, they have taken some steam out of the market. We've seen that in, in the Toronto area. As a result, like a lot of buyers are saying, hey, the government says foreign buyers are an issue, so let's hold back a little bit. Let's be a bit cautious and see where prices go. That's a phenomenon we tend to be seeing, and I wouldn't be surprised if that moved into Hamilton and Niagara next. Is the foreign buyer issue really a problem here in Ontario? No, I, I don't think so. Now, like, number one, this is kind of surprising me, Bill, when I came on board in my new job as CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. Nobody keeps track of that stuff. Like if I said how many foreign buyers were there in Hamilton or St. Catharines in Toronto, nobody had a clue. So to the credit of the government, they're now tracking that data. Uh, foreign buyers who uh, are not going to be living here permanently, they have to pay a tax. So we'll have info now. But I suspect where you are, the majority of your listening audience, that, that was not really an issue. I think it was genuine demand for housing from you know new immigrants, people spilling out of Toronto, millennials who are screaming to get out of mom and dad's basement. It's all natural demand with low mortgage rates. Well, and that's what I heard, and you're right. I mean, there's, there's no you know, empirical data on this right now, but anecdotally, uh, when I've talked to some of the agents and some of the, uh, the brokers around this area, Tim, They've told us, yeah, there are a lot of foreign buyers, but they're buying it to live here. They're, they're moving to this area. Uh, and and yeah. now they're being penalized by this tax, and they're getting a little ticked off about it. Yeah, I mean, just like my grandparents did when they moved from, yeah. you know, what was then Czechoslovakia, right? They, they A lot of immigrants, uh, strong values of actually owning a home as opposed to renting. And uh, most of them are, are going to be living here. Maybe their kid goes to McMaster. Maybe they're going to work at the hospital. So we've got to be careful not to whack people. You know, we're moving here to contribute to our economy with a brand new tax. The part I want to say too, Bill, is I do remain optimistic um, about demand, you know, in the future. So psychology we saw in Vancouver when the government there brought in a foreign tax, foreign buyer's tax, about 40% of the market disappeared. Everybody went cautious. The government meddled, so they all stood back. But then about six months later, it came roaring back again, so prices are back up. So all those underlying features of demand, the new immigration, the millennials, Low mortgage rate, bank on mom and dad helping out their kids. That hasn't changed. So I still think, see things going up over the medium and long term in Hamilton, Burlington. What about in, in the short term, though? Because I've heard, and again, this is just anecdotal, because you guys have the data, uh, but the agents are the ones that are on the ground. And I know you, you have talks with them all the time about what, what they're hearing and what they're seeing, of course, because they're, they're the ones that are sitting at that kitchen table with potential buyers and sellers. And, and I'm hearing from a couple of them that, well, the bubble has burst. Is it that dramatic, Tim? Uh, that's, you know, that's probably exaggerated language. I, I, I use the term like I think some of the steam has come off the market. I mean, you're still seeing prices uh, up year over year. But, look, I mean, the best thing you can do, if, if you're thinking right now about selling or buying a place, you know, get a realtor who knows that neighborhood, right? Like, nobody's going to know where prices are going, what projects are coming in, there's anything you should be wary about, who lives in the neighborhood kind of schools. Like, that's what a realtor does full-time. So make sure you get good advice from him or her. Yeah, it's interesting because in the hot, hot time of this market, I guess about four or five months ago, uh, we heard from all kinds of people said, oh, no, I'm selling privately. I don't need any agent. I don't need no, I'm going to get this done. I just have to put a sign up on the lawn here or put it up on the on the Internet, and it'll be gone in four or five days. And, and frankly, in some cases it did. But uh, that that's I don't think those days are ha- are here anymore. I think obviously thing. From what I'm hearing now, buyers and, and those that are still out there looking are be a little more discerning right now. Yeah, I, I just think that, 
Look, you can do that. It's, you're not forced to use a realtor, but it's smart to do that. I, there was one guy who was that story. I think he was in Oakville, Bill, who bragged about he sold his whole house on Kijiji in like 10 minutes. Well, look, at anybody can do that, but you probably left two or 300 grand on the table. Like the first guy knocks on your door, you're going to sell the house to that guy? Don't you want to have somebody that's actually going to bring in a lot of buyers? That's what your realtor can do, and you don't leave that extra money on the table that you're going to need in retirement. What about uh, those days, uh, and again, they weren't that far off, uh, where there were bids on houses? And, and you know, you, you had to go in. If somebody was asking 500000 bucks for a house, uh, you probably had to come in at five sixty or 600000 if you even wanted to be in the ballgame on stuff like this. Uh, and those are the crazy days, and maybe that's what the government was reacting to when, when they started to announce some of these measures right now. Uh, are those days gone? Uh, as I said earlier, what we saw in Vancouver was, there was a bit of a pause, and then it came back because all of the stuff that's driving demand has not changed. And those are all good things, right? We want people, millennials, to get good jobs and a career and buy a house and raise a family. It's nice to have low mortgage rates because you and I, Bill, remember the opposite end of the scale in 1980. So I just think things are going to bounce back. I, I look at the province sort of as a big pond where Toronto's the middle. And you drop a rock in the middle of the pond and the ripples spread out. You know, first Mississauga, then Oakville, then Hamilton, Burlington, then Niagara. So I suspect we'll see a bit more of the caution in the short term. But with this kind of up and down volatility, I just want to underline that. That's why you need to make sure you've got a trained professional who knows your neighborhood and a realtor who can give you the best advice on where this market is going in a neighborhood that you like. What about cross markets right now? Because uh, there was a lot of talk earlier and, and even some statistical evidence, I think, Tim, that showed that uh, when the market really started to take off a few months ago, especially here in the Hamilton, Burlington area, that some of those, not all, but some of those people were coming from the GTA uh, simply because they could get a better bargain here. Do, are you tracking that? Do you see that still happening? Yeah, you're right on there, and, and we do see that uh, in the data. I mean, it's a Canadian dream. Uh, there's a time in life where you want to live in a high-rise and you don't mind being in a shoebox or you're close to the, the pub or work, but then these little things called kids come along, Bill, and uh, people like to have a bit of space to kick the ball around with your daughter in the backyard. They look for a house, and they're driving farther and farther away to get that Canadian dream detached house. So what we need to do right now in this marketplace, while things may be calming a little bit, the government needs to make sure we got more supply coming into the market. So more single-family homes, more condos, because we don't have enough supply to keep up with increasing demand. But is government listening to that? Because I know you've talked about this with me on the program before, Tim. And I get this idea about, you know, we have to be cautious about green space. And, of course, we have the Green Belt here in the Hamilton area and in other parts of Ontario right now. And we respect that and we understand the theory and the philosophy behind that, absolutely. But it seems to me as if there is also a market out there for single-family homes, not just for those condos or, or townhomes, that people still want that backyard that they can play around in or have barbecues in right now. It, can the market respond to that, or are they getting a pushback from, from governments who have, a, in some cases, a different philosophical view? Yeah, you, you're right on that last point. There's um, the philosophy among some people in government and some of the you know, advocacy groups that we're going to change human behavior. And the, the dream of having a single-family home is dead, and we all got to live in high-rises. I don't believe that. And, in fact, you can see people responding, you know, by hopping in their car and driving farther away. It's just part of life. So he asked me, is the government responding? We've actually had really good meetings with them. I sat down with Premier Wynn, the finance minister. We've had about 16 different meetings like that. And they have announced they're going to take some measures to reduce the red tape barrier that's holding housing back, 
to ease off on some of the outdated restrictions that are limiting development. And we can do all of that without touching an inch of the Greenbelt Bill. There's plenty of land that has been identified for new homes, including single detached homes. Problem is, we're not tying infrastructure funding there. And you can't move into a house if you turn on the tap and no water comes out. It's, a, it's not a, a, unlike what's going on with some of the other things, and, and maybe the auto industry comes to mind, too. I mean, how many times have we heard government announcements over the last couple of years about, you know, we're all going to be in electric cars in the next five years, and they're going to be this and that. And uh, yet, you know, when you look at the hard and fast numbers here, we're still buying, uh, you know, gas-powered cars. Uh, some are moving to hybrids, and they thought that was going to be the big trend, too. And I think that's only like 2 or 3% of the, of the new car market right now are hybrids. Uh, we're not going as fast as governments seem to want us to go on things like that, but that's the market re- at talking when they do that, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the market's going to dictate where we go, and government can try to, you know, force the, uh, you know, that kind of change, but uh, it, it usually ends in failure, right? You may have a theory that you want human beings to act a certain way, <laughs> but evolution teaches us that we tend to have families. We tend to look for a bit more space, and we tend to move up in our real estate over the years, uh, to get that big home. So there's still hope here, right? Like There's lots of opportunity for growth. The bottom line is that we need to knock down some of the outdated regulations that slow things down. We should give more local decision-making to the Hamilton Council or Burlington or West Lincoln so they're not all being forced with a Toronto pattern of, of high-rises in smaller towns and cities. Like The options are on the table. The government is saying the right thing, and we really hope they start moving because if there is going to be a calm in the market, you can't sit complacently because we're going to be roaring back soon. Yeah, and, and well, the areas that you used to represent, of course, when you were still in provincial politics, I think are classic examples of that. People like their space a lot of the time, and, and, and they're very hesitant to give up on that. And, and you saw that phenomenon happen, Tim. I mean, you and I were both raised in this idea that, well, after the kids grew up and left, and I know you and Deborah are a long way from that happening, but, you know, okay, you sell the house, you go get yourself an apartment or a high-rise someplace. People are hanging yeah. on to the houses right now because they, they like that space. You know, you make a, a good point. I want to underline, like, the main point I want to, I'm driving with government, I appreciate the time on CHML, is that we need to focus on increasing supply and choice in the marketplace. So some will want the high-rise condo. Some will want the, you know, the ranch-style house. One big piece we're also missing is what's called the missing middle. These tend to be townhomes or stacked townhouses. They're really good because they're usually more affordable for millennials. But also, like you just mentioned, Bill, empty nesters. The kids have moved away. You want to stay close to the community that you love or your grandkids, but we don't have enough missing middle. And when the empty nesters move, that frees up the single-family home for a new couple starting out. And we're seeing that in Hamilton. I mean, the condo market is, is, I don't necessarily know if booming is the right word, but it's doing quite well, especially in the downtown core. We're seeing more and more of that. And, uh, Tim, they're buying them before they're even breaking ground on these, which tells me that that there's a market for that sort of thing here. But I don't think you can focus on that at the exclusion of all the other variables, as you've talked about, and all the other housing options at this stage. I mean, you know, from an economic standpoint, Hamilton made a huge mistake a couple of generations ago by simply saying, yeah, we're going to be heavy industry and nothing else. We're not going to diversify. Well, that, that hurt us for a long, long time. If we want to prosper in this housing market, I think we still have to offer uh, affordability, but also choice, don't we? Yeah, uh, precisely. And you under, you just reiterated there exactly why it's not good for government to choose winners and losers, whether we're choosing electric cars or hybrids or what type of economic development. Governments are usually pretty lousy at making that choice. Markets and consumers make that choice. So we need to free up those who are adding homes to our communities to make the right choices because they're going to respond. They want to fill them up. They'll respond to where market demand is. And right now, we have far too many restrictions 
and too much narrow thinking about how to provide that housing. Your your point about uh, you know having an agent that can do things like this. I mean, you the, the, especially the people that are of course affiliated with MLS, they have all this data at their fingertips. And 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 I know I've talked to so many people that have decided to get into this market uh, because of these the numbers and the conversations they hear on the radio by, by people like you and me, Tim. That uh, that you know they get data about what's sold, how much it's sold for. You know what are people looking for. Uh, it's it's not a pig in a poke. It's a very scientific method to, to get into the housing market these days, uh, and you really need that kind of professional help, I, I would think, to make this thing work for everybody. You do, and, and the realtor's approach is comprehensive. So you're right, they look at market data, what are similar houses selling for, but they also know, you know what's going to happen in that neighborhood. Is there a new park coming up? Is that field behind you going to turn into condos someday? Is there any environmental concern in the area? What are the local schools like, the crime rate? What type of neighbors are you going to have? Like the realtors are on the ground each and every day. So if you're making the biggest investment in your life, don't fool around. Get somebody to give you the solid advice on what's going to be a bright future ahead of you. Well, uh, just based on the neighborhood uh, in which we live, uh, you know, the number for sale signs that are popping up, people are deciding to, uh, to throw their hat into the ring here and see what happens. So we'll see what that does to the numbers, I guess, for this month. Tim, thanks as always. It's always good to have you on the program. I appreciate the time today. My pleasure, sir. You have yourself a great day. Thank you for the time. You too. Take care, Tim. Tim Hudak, of course, the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. News out of Washington, obviously, uh, about the Donald Trump situation, and uh, it seems to get curiouser and curiouser. Uh, The special counsel that is overseeing the Russian investigation, of course, uh, former FBI Director Robert Mueller, uh, has uh, made it official that, yes, they are investigating Donald Trump himself for obstruction of justice, uh, much to the chagrin of uh, Donald Trump himself, I would think, and uh, a number of his uh, acolytes who have already gone on social media and, of course, uh, their public relations uh, vehicle in the States, Fox News, uh, to try to defend the president and to vilify Mueller, which is uh, rather interesting in and of itself. Joining us to talk about this is George Breckenridge, a retired political science professor from McMaster University. George, how are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm fine, Bill. I think you're doing better than uh, Donald Trump is these days. <laughs> yeah. uh, just It's just when he thought he was clear, and, and w- according to his own tweets, that he was vindicated by the yeah. Comey c- uh, uh, testimony, which he wasn't, by the way, but that yeah. seemed to be the way things were in Donald Trump's little world, yeah. uh, comes word from Mueller that, the, yeah, he's being, Trump himself is being investigated. Are you surprised? Um, no, no. I mean, it's fairly obvious from Comey's testimony that, that at least this looks like, you know, or could be interpreted as an instruction of justice. Um, and so, I mean, the funny thing was that when he talked, that time he talked to the, the Russian foreign minister, he said, you know, after firing Comey, you know, the, the pressure has been lifted. And now the pressure's on big time again. Um, yeah, no, it's obvious that that would have to be investigated because, uh, and the fact that some of the other officials, the security officials, uh, refused to answer, Sessions, all of them refused to answer as to whether they had discussed uh, firing Comey and the reasons for it with, um, with, the, with the president. And so there was an obvious, you know, he couldn't avoid getting into that, yeah. George, I, I get confused when I see some of the reaction from Trump himself, who's on Twitter again, yeah, yeah. and and the folks like Newt Gingrich and, and some of the others, and we'll get to them in just a couple of minutes, uh, because they seem to be crossing things up here. They don't seem to get uh, one investigation uh, mixed up with another. I mean, yeah. they sound like John McCain did during the Comey investigation. Everybody was scratching their heads saying, what is he even asking about here? Because yeah, yeah. he, he got totally confused between the Hillary investigation and, and what was going on well, with people, the, the Russian ties. jet lagged, which is 
is the nicest explanation. Yeah, and, and now they're saying, well, you know, gee, Comey told us that Trump wasn't under investigation. What Comey said under oath was that on May 6th, when he got fired, Trump was not under investigation right. because there was, right. no, there, was no, there was no evidence of any obstruction at that right, time. Exactly, exactly. The investigation right. is what happened during that, that firing. Because of the, the way he was fired and the way... I mean, the, the, the amazing thing about the whole business was, you know, when... Because uh, initially the Justice Department put out this explanation that he, Comey was being fired because of the mishandling of the Clinton stuff. And then Trump went on television and not just... Not, not under sort of cross-examination, volunteered that the real reason he had done it was to get to try and make this this investigation go away. I mean, he's the one who put that out there himself. And then he doubled down on it, the, you know, yeah. as you say, when the Russian uh, diplomats were there, because he told those Russian diplomats that, you know, the heat's off right now because he fired, I forget what phrase he used, uh, idiot Comey. I mean, he made a derogatory comment about Comey. Yeah, yeah. On the record. I mean, his own words are actually, uh, you know, starting to, to pile up against him here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, he's up against two, two people, Comey and, uh, and Mueller, who are by, almost probably the, by the hardest people in Washington to impugn. You know, they have, they're, for the one thing, they both have Republican backgrounds, although they've never... Well, they're really, both, yeah, they're both, that's right, they're never, registered Republicans, both of them. Yeah, but they've never been seen as highly partisan in the no. jobs, jobs that they've held. And, and they, they, even when Comey was arguably mishandling the, the Clinton investigation stuff, everybody said, well, he's mis a misjudgment, but nobody doubted his motives, and nobody impugned his motive. So these are, these are, and Mueller is even more like that. I mean, you know, he was umpteen years as head of the FBI without any question of scandal or misjudgment or anything. So that to imagine that they can somehow impugn these people is, is absurd. Well, on Twitter this morning, I don't know if you saw this one, George, no, but no. Newt Gingrich, who uh, oh. has been a very strong advocate of Trump's, especially yeah. since his wife got an appointment to the Vatican. I guess there's, there's no connection between those two, I'm sure. But but uh, he's gone on Twitter this morning. Uh, first of all, he's saying that, uh, that, that Mueller is, is now in charge of a witch hunt, and this is terrible. It's the worst thing in the history of, of U.S. politics, the worst witch hunt. Now, juxtapose that with a, a tweet that he put out four weeks ago, four yeah. weeks ago, yeah. praising Robert Mueller, saying, yeah. great appointment as special prosecutor. Yeah, the guy exactly. is impeccable. Everybody just cool off and let him do his job. Now Newt is his biggest critic. Well, Newt, I mean, Newt likes to do two things. Newt likes to, he likes to be in the news. He likes to think of himself as Frank, you know, somebody who, who tells it like it is. That's part of it. But also, he's a buddy of, of Trump's, and he wants to keep that connection. He wants to stay in, you know, he wants Trump to keep calling him. Trump apparently called there are a number of people like that who Trump calls during the, in the lonely evenings <laughs> who, you know, to... to um, Praise him and tell him he's doing a good job and stuff like that. So he wants to keep that connection. So uh, yeah, but you get uh, the whole thing is riddled with these kind of contradictions, you know, of saying one thing and then doing and then all of a sudden something else. The notion, the witch hunt notion, you know, is bandied about all the time when you don't like what's going on. I, I, nobody would take that seriously. There's something going on here too about the investigation itself, which I find intriguing. Uh, is that apparently because uh, they did ask Comey about the, the you know was was you know the president being investigated and he said not he said to my knowledge no but he says I would, wouldn't be surprised if it were well apparently it has happened because apparently Mueller has already had discussions with Daniel Coats the uh, current director yeah, of national yeah. intelligence 
with Admiral Mike Rogers, yeah. who's the head of the National Security, and with Richard Leggett, uh, who is the uh, recently departed uh, deputy of that department. Yeah, okay. And they've already, they have already indicated that Trump has approached all of them, or did yeah. a, a couple of weeks ago, yeah. and asked them to go to Comey and tell them to back off that's on the right. investigation. That's right. That's right. More pressure to directly on Comey himself, and then on these other intelligence officials to try and get Comey to back off. I mean, it's reminiscent. Of I mean, Trump, it's, Trump is amazing. He doesn't seem to know any history at all. It's so, so much of this is reminiscent of, of Watergate. The, the notion of Watergate just keeps coming back. Because, I mean, what really got Nixon in the end and forced him out was, was the obstruction of justice, where he ordered the uh, CIA to tell the FBI to back off. You know, he said, you know, but tell them to back off because there's national security implications, which, of course, wasn't true. And they didn't do that, but uh, he was on. They caught him on tape saying exactly that, you know. So um, the obstruction of justice, the attempt to make this go away or to divert it, is very reminiscent. And even you know the crazy talk. I mean, of uh, that he's going to fire Mueller. You know, <laughs> he, does, does the man have no political sense at all? I mean, because that immediately takes you into Archibald Cox territory, you know, and that was the beginning of the end for Nixon. Yeah, the yeah the the the, the massacre, the Saturday massacre Saturday that occurred in October. Yeah, that was the beginning of the, really the beginning of the end for Nixon. Well, and there was denial, of course. That rumor floated last weekend that Trump was going to fire Mueller. Yeah. Then on Monday, a White House official said, "No, no, that's not going to happen." But then, uh, I guess a couple of days ago. Uh, it was reported, and I think in the L.A. Times, that Trump was actually going to do it, and he got talked out of it by some of his advisors. Well, so that's right. I mean, his advisors have been, I mean, one reason, apparently, that some people, somebody, some of his people leaked the story that he was thinking of doing this is to tr- put pressure on to not to do it, you know, because they're saying, you know, this would be, they know, they know this would be complete suicide, you know, and, and yet with Trump, they can never be certain that he's not going to do something that stupid. He's, 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 every step he takes, <clears throat> he has made things worse for himself. He really has. Now, at the bottom of this, you know, why is he so anxious or, or worried or frustrated about the original investigation? There obviously has to be something there. Now, the latest, the latest kind of uh, inf- information is, which I've thought for a while is probably the case, is that the people around Trump, certainly, maybe not Trump himself, but the people around Trump are involved in money laundering. You know, with, with the Russian oligarchs. The Russian oligarchs have been money, lo, trying to launder the money, get the money out of the country and everything else, and clean it up. And people like Manafort and, and um, Carter Page and people like that, they're clearly in it, on Flynn as well, I think, are in it, were in it for the money. They were trying to make some money. And they had contacts with the Russians, and the Russians you know, also saw wanted these people to get close to Trump. That would be an additional advantage. So the new investigation also includes whether money laundering was involved, which is another crime. Now, in the case of Trump and I suspect Kushner, I suspect, I don't think, you know, I don't know that there was there was one story about Trump apparently involved in money laundering with a property in, in Florida. But but uh, I think it's more likely that they simply are in hawk to the Russians to the Russian banks and oligarchs. They have loans there, and they're, which they've been trying to protect. Um, it may not be any more than that, but uh, the whole thing has got, it just keeps spreading and getting more and more complicated. But the fact that it's now a criminal investigation, because obstruction of justice is a crime, 
um, also means that the, the, the president can't claim executive privilege because in the Nixon case, uh, the Supreme Court said, well, executive privilege is important for the president you know, to retain confidential information and conversations and stuff like that. But if there's, a, if there's any suspicion of a, of a crime, then it can be waived. And it was, and they, the Supreme Court waived it in the case of ordering Nixon to hand over the relevant tapes. So, your your uh, analogy between this and, and Watergate and and, yeah. and, and the hit you know it's popping things, up yeah well it, it and then it's things unfold that that may actually come to fruition because I know there are some people that are saying oh come on it's not like Watergate no uh, then then you know what then their 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 memories and their history is failing them if that's the case because in the early stages of that investigation there was deniability from everything you know the White yeah. House denied everything the advocates of the Nixon White House denied everything yeah. no how could why would they be involved in a stupid break in in a hotel. Yeah. But then the dominoes started to fall, and, yeah. and I guess Deep Throat, as we know historically, yeah, had a lot yeah, to do yeah. with that, like turning the media and Woodward and Bernstein into certain people. And yeah. then we started to find out about Colson and about slush funds and that's about right. a lot of stuff it that began to unravel. Nobody right. even knew that that side of it existed, and right. uh, and about some of the coercion that was going on uh, yeah. from people in the White House. And yeah. now I don't know if it's going to go that far. But, you know, as, as Bill Crystal, the uh, very conservative, by the way, yes, yes. Uh, commentator in the States, I know you're quite familiar with him. This yeah. is not the comedian for our listeners. This is Bill no, Crystal, no. the <laughs> political commentator who's yeah. been an ardent conservative. Yeah. If he says, look, it, if, if he didn't do anything, if there was no collusion, he's got nothing to worry about. Yeah. And then he goes on to say, but Trump is clearly worried. Make your own conclusions. That's right. I mean, that's right. I mean, if there was really nothing there, he should have encouraged the investigation to get over as quickly as possible. But there obviously there's something there that he that he's worried about, and of course, every, say every step is taken virtually has made it worse, have made it more complicated, it opened up a new area like obstruction of justice. And the thing about obstruction of justice in both Nixon's case and Clinton's case, Clinton was accused of obstruction of justice as well. Now he was found not guilty, but uh, so obstruction of justice is often you know it's the old story: the cover up is worse than the crime. It's that's a very dangerous area for the president. Well, this is one of the other hypocritical things about Newt Gingrich with his rants over Fox News the, yeah. uh, over the last 24 hours. Yeah. He's now accusing Mueller, who a month ago he praised as being yeah. a, a, a very ethical and, and you know respected right. individual, yeah. as, as this guy who's just going on a witch hunt trying to destroy the Trump presidency. Newt Gingrich is the same guy that hired Ken Starr to do that to the Clintons. Yeah. And he's the same guy that after... Because if, for people that don't know about Ken Starr, he was the special prosecutor yeah. But he was appointed to find out whether or not the Clintons were implicated in the Whitewater real estate that's right, deal. That's right. Uh, it had nothing at all to do with anything else. And they've looked every, uh, under every stone and found out that there was nothing there illegal was nothing about there. what the Clintons that's, did. That's right. But instead of saying, okay, fine, thanks for coming out, Mr. Starr, they turned him on Clinton's personal life. And they just decided, you know what, we're going to keep going until we find some dirt on it. And, of course, of course they did. It didn't have to dig too deeply to find dirt on Bill well, Clinton's uh, personal life. Yeah, I mean, that, that has been the problem with special prosecutors, so-called. Um, and, and Ken Starr is the best example of that. There are other examples of that. The argument is that they're so independent, and once they're, you know, there's such a hullabaloo setting them up, they have to find something. But the Mueller case is quite different, I think. I mean, Mueller really is a man widely respected in Washington, enormously experienced in these kind of areas. And so to try and malign him is simply not going to work. But it's that's really, been the Trump strategy, though, hasn't it, George? If, well, uh, if somebody comes up against you, you, you try to dis- oh, yeah, besmirch always, their character. He's always done that. You know, lying, you know, crooked Hillary and all that kind of stuff. He's always done that, demeaning and, and, and uh, defaming people. 
but with with something like Mueller and to call me to some extent, you know, with a more controversial figure, but Mueller is not controversial at all, <laughs> and uh, this is simply not going to work. Mueller knows what he's doing. He's hired a lot of very high-profile uh, assistants in in his campaign, in his uh, in his investigation, and uh, you're not going to you're not going to impugn him seriously, except for you know the Trump Trumpkins. <laughs> you know what's interesting about this too. You talk about Mueller and, and his uh, his method of doing things, and I, I guess this goes back to his days when he was still running the FBI too. George, yeah. he said nothing through this whole thing. He has made no public statements oh, at all no, about he this. Won't. He, no, he won't. He's, no, he's just he doing his job, and he's he's not holding media conferences, which might have been part of Comey's mistake in hindsight. Yeah. But Mueller is just uh, you know he doing it, and he'll release the report when it becomes uh, f- finished. I guess whenever yeah, that's going well, to be. Well, Comey was a bit of a grandstander. I think that's clearly because Mueller yeah. is not. It's not like that at all. So he will not say anything. I'm certain he he and his his main team will not say anything. There, there are leaks coming out. Uh, Washington is leaking all over this, but a lot of that is coming from. No, I suspect not from him and his people, but from the people who who have been, you know, approached, who've been told that they want to interview. Well, the inf- the information that we just talked about about the, the conversations that Trump had, uh, yeah. uh, you know, with people like Daniel Coates and with Richard Ledgett, they're yeah. they're coming from those people. Not they're coming from the Trump administration. They're yeah. not coming from the investigators very at all. Very likely, very likely. Yeah, that's right. Which and which tells the, you something about loyalty, I guess. The White House staff all along has been scrambling. And of course, the more you know, the people in the in the White in the Clinton who were in the Clinton White House during the impeachment thing have testified, have told the story about how awful it is to be on the staff when something like this is happening. It just completely dominates everything else, and everybody's running for cover. You know, everybody's trying to protect themselves. So they're they're leaking like a like a sieve, you know, from the White House itself. Going to be interesting to see how this unfolds. Oh, uh, yeah. Stranger every day. George, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. No problem. George uh, Breckenridge, of course, uh, retired political science professor from McMaster University, specializing in American politics, which is uh, very strange indeed these days. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.